cross. Death hung over me. It seemed impossible not to want death hanging over me. The deaths of Ron and Steve were incomprehensible. Sometimes I'd wake up in the morning and it was as if Ron and Steve were still alive. Then I'd go through another bereavement as reality descended on me, as a gargantuan Jurassic winged reptile. The Savage Cabbage Blues Band was a memory. Lindy Dale was a memory. She'd been there every day at school, but her presence merely served to remind me that she wasn't available beyond the school precincts. We talked. We were friends. We still had everything in common we'd always had in common. But she was terminally unavailable in any other way than pseudo-platonic friendship. Romance was still there. We still sparkled at each other, doomed to torture ourselves with what couldn't be. We were living in a world where parents held the trump cards and the fact that I'd broken free merely made me an isolated anomaly. What kind of freedom is freedom owned in isolation? Apart from long hair and liberty to dress as I pleased, I was as free as the other captives, at least as far as ladies of my own age were concerned. It was like renting a room in a prison where I was free to leave, but only if I left everyone else behind. I had a considerable swathe of time to think about death. We all have to die. But that's a platitude uttered when death's not on the doorstep. In terms of Buddhism, I'd studied the right material. It should have prepared me. I'd read about impermanence, old age, sickness and death. I'd read about them as facts to com contemplate. I'd contemplated. I thought I'd reflected on them religiously, but realised that my contemplation had been facile. Old age, sickness and death had been conveniently far off. My contemplations had been expediently abstract. Now that I faced real contemplation, I found I resented it. I couldn't relate to it as meaningful. If there was meaning, it was bleak. If there was no meaning, it was bleak. If meaning and meaninglessness had the same taste, that too seemed bleak. I had no way of knowing. The one taste of pleasure and pain? The one taste of success and failure? The one taste of hope and fear? The one taste of emptiness and form? That was the goal, but would I ever reach that goal? Did I actually want to reach that goal? There were two answers. The first answer was affirmative. Yes, I wanted to taste that one taste. Then there was the honest answer. No. 
What I really wanted was hope, success and pleasure. The problem was that what I really wanted was suspect. It was not attainable. I knew that, but I only knew it intellectually. I'd only known the inevitability of death intellectually. And now I was faced with reality. People had been dying for almost two million years. In all that time, and amongst the countless millions who had died, I was an invisible cipher. I was so far to the left of the decimal point that it would have taken a radio telescope to catch a glimpse of it. I was utterly insignificant. My being insignificant didn't worry me. But Ron and Steve could not be relegated to somewhere out of sight at the end of a series of zeros. My contemplation did help me see that I could not indulge in any sense that anything was unfair. Unfair was a word for idiots. People had experienced far greater loss. Britain had just come through two world wars. My mother had lost her brother. Probably every family in Britain and Germany had lost someone. What was I to make of any of that, apart from seeing that life was in the moment? I couldn't base happiness on the guarantee that no one would die, or that Linda's parents would finally relent. No. I wrote in my notebook at the time, Happiness can only be in the moment, with exactly what the moment contains. I have to keep coming back to that moment. When I do, everything is fine, for a moment. The moment is a gap between history and temporal prognosis. There is a future that is forming itself out of everything that has happened and is currently happening. That future is, as yet, simply empty potential. The future is empty potential unless it becomes inevitable due to habits and causes that are being set in motion and maintained by habit. If there is no habit, however, what then? I have the sense that a habit-free moment could expand into all moments. They would all still be that one moment, but it would be a vast moment that contained all moments, each separate yet inseparable in their momentary quality. I have no idea how such a configuration has arisen. I wish I could ask a Lama about these things. I decided that the answer must lie in the Bardo Tudro, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and so I opened it and read. I continued to read until the end, but was none the wiser. The problem was that Evans Vence, despite his fascination with Vajrayana, remained a theosophist. Theosophy is largely based on Hinduism, so his presentation of the Bardo Tudral was somewhat skewed. His biblical thee and thou were annoying too. 
that they were nothing in comparison with his fascination with comparative religion that intruded in such a way as to make the book heavy going. I was going to have to learn Tibetan and read the original text, or hope that someone else would translate it. I was thrown back on personal resources yet again. I drove home from Steve's funeral riddled with purposelessness, machine-gunned by the Thompson of tragedy. Life had emptied the whole ammunition case into me and it felt as if it would have killed a rampant triceratops. It was bad enough losing my two best friends, but there was the guilt as well. The guilt was due to the fact that I should not be grieving the loss of my blues future. I had no business mourning anyone but Steve and Ron. When I started feeling bad that the main musical chance of my life had also died, I'd feel some kind of inhuman monster. The only thing that made it any better was the knowledge that I'd have traded my blues future to have them both back again, even if we'd had to have stayed as a strictly nowhere band. I wondered, in spite of this, if I'd ever really be free to mourn the loss of being the vocalist of the best blues band there ever was. Savage Cabbage was now the best blues band there never was. Then there was the loss of Lindy. Somehow Savage Cabbage had cushioned me. There'd been pleasure in my life, great pleasure, and I could forget about Lindy on stage. I could forget about Lindy in rehearsals. I could forget about Lindy when wrapped in musical discussion with Ron and Steve. I could forget about Lindy when I sat in silence and let go of thought. But Lindy was there, in being not there in almost every other moment. And now there was nothing at all, other than the promise of art school in mid-September. I knew I should be grateful for that. I had to keep reminding myself, however, that I should be grateful. Because there wasn't really nothing at all. It just felt like that. I was a failure as a bluesman. I was a failure as a Buddhist. Only rarely did the slightest of grins cross my face. And that was when I considered the fact that I'd been born in Westphalia and therefore failure should be no surprise to me. I got home from the funeral in the twilight and parked my motorcycle at the bottom of Woodsfield Lane. I sat on that glorious chopped 500 BSA, leaning back on the sissy bars, staring into the indeterminate dusk. I'd not decided I didn't want to go home, but the feeling had settled on me just as I turned into the lane. I would have preferred to have kept riding. I could have ridden down to Cadgeworth or anywhere just in order not to deal with anything but the open road. I didn't want to have to talk to anyone 
or answer anyone's questions. I didn't want to do anything or plan anything or exist any more than was absolutely necessary. Motorcycle riding was perfect for that because it gave me an occupation. It demanded attention, but nothing else. Sitting in the dark was better than arriving at home, but it didn't last long. My father suddenly made his turn into Woodsfield Lane and his headlights were full on me. He knew where I'd been. He parked and came over to me. He asked me if I was all right and I said, yes, Dad, I'm fine. But there were tears running down my face. That's why going home was something I didn't want to do. It was easier somehow to sit in the dark. Come home when you can, Victor. I nodded. He left me there, got in his car and drove the remaining 200 yards. I saw him reverse into the drive. The lights went out. I knew I'd have to go home sooner rather than later. Dragging it out wouldn't help. It actually made me smile to think of my father being so sensitive concerning the death of Steve. In previous times, he would have barked at me for sitting at the side of the road in the dark. But since the hair debacle of 68, all that had changed. It suddenly occurred to me that it wouldn't be generous of me to sit there more than five minutes, as he and my mother might be worried. I dismounted towed up the stand, kick-started and puttered quietly up the road. My father had left the gates open. I noted it with gratitude. I walked into the house and smiled at them, just to let them know I was all right. My mother told me that we were having Welsh rarebit for dinner and I smiled at her. That'll be perfect. I'll just go up and change. When I came down, the television was on, as usual, so I sat down to watch with Graham. I don't remember what programme was showing. I didn't look at it. I simply used it as a means of remaining silent. The table had already been laid, so there was nothing for me to do in any case. By the time I was called to dinner, everything was more or less fine. No one asked anything of me, and my mother and father did what they always did, talked about his day at work. The following day, they both told me of those they'd lost in World War II, and told me they knew how I felt. I thanked them, and meant it, and spent some time dwelling on the fact that bereavement was a universal experience like Donovan's Universal Soldier, and its orders came from far away no more. <laughs>